This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 36, A Profile of Julius Caesar, Part 1. Firstly, let's go off on a tangent and explain an anomaly that we simply take for granted in modern English. Julius Caesar, the man whose name is used to give us the name of the month of July, is one of the most famous people whose name begins with the letter J. This is strange because there was no distinct letter J in the Latin alphabet for another 1,600 years after Julius Caesar's lifetime. There is another character from the same era of our history that is even more famous than Caesar, whose name begins with the letter J. And his name is Jesus. So how can it be that such famous people from 2,000 years ago have a name that begins with a letter that is no more than 500 years old. The story of Jesus' name takes us back to episodes of the podcast from Volume 2, when we discuss the ancient history of Levantine religion during Episode 10, and then the history of writing in Episode 22. Jesus is clearly the anglicised version of the original name. So if we look to earlier works of the Bible, not written in modern English, then we can trace Jesus' name back to the Hebrew name Yehoshua, which roughly translates to Yahweh is salvation. So we can see a direct link between Jesus and the ancient Jewish deity called Yahweh who is closely linked to the modern Christian concept of God. The actual name of Jesus is a result of how the name Yehoshua has travelled over the years. When the name Yehoshua migrated to Greek lands, it would morph into the Greek name Iesus, and from Greek to Latin to become Iesus. And then with the emergence of the letter J into the Latin alphabet, it would become Jesus. The same can be said for the name Julius Caesar. It would not have been Julius in Latin, but instead it would have been Julius, as he would have been born into the Iulia family, which in modern times is often referred to as the Julia family. It might be a surprise to learn that despite Caesar himself being an iconic representative for the less conservative political faction called the Popularis, that the Julia family is noted as one of the patrician families, which is another way of saying that it was an aristocratic family. Most aristocratic families would have been more likely to affiliate themselves with the more conservative Optimates political faction. 
Gaius Julius Kaiser was born on the 12th or 13th of July, 100 BCE, in the city of Rome. His father was a Roman senator, also called Gaius Julius Kaiser. His mother was called Aurelia, and she was a descendant of a plebeian family. Caesar's father had a sister, and her name was Julia. Julia was married to one of the most prominent statesmen of Rome at that time, a man called Gaius Marius. Gaius Marius was a charismatic man who had made major reforms to the Roman military that were not only necessary, but also highly successful. Despite Julia being of aristocratic patrician birth, her husband Marius was an advocate of the popularis cause in Rome, which sought to support the citizens directly over conserving the wealth and traditions of the aristocracy and a more capitalistic approach to the direction of the Roman Republic. Marius would look to accommodate the needs of the average citizen, and although this made him less popular with the aristocracy, it would make him more popular with the population in general. Growing up, we can suggest that through Caesar's own character and his own choices in life, that he must have been inspired by Gaius Marius, and what he had achieved. And we shouldn't be too surprised because Marius was an inspiration to many. However, Rome had been spiralling into a political division, the likes of which had not been seen since the conflict of the orders when the plebeians were fighting for political rights against the patricians in the early years of the Roman Republic. The Optimates and their supporters had shown that they were not beyond murdering political opponents as demonstrated during the times of the Gracchi brothers, and this only served to heighten tensions in the Roman Republic. So Caesar was born into a tense Roman society where you could be forced to choose your loyalty and pay the consequences of your choice. Marius had used a great degree of political diplomacy to balance the generally cynical attitude of the senators towards popularist politicians and support for his own beliefs and causes. As consul, Marius would have to stand up in the face of people who he may otherwise have supported, such as Saturninus, and so this would have been valuable lessons for the child Caesar, learning the way of the world that he was born into. Marius would be an important commander in the social war between the Roman Republic and its Italian allies. The Italian allies were the non-Roman societies such as the Etruscans and other Italian peninsular ethnicities that wanted to be entitled to full Roman citizenship. And once again, Marius would have ordinarily have supported their cause, but for the fact that this had now turned into a military issue. Marius had to honour his political duty to stand up for the Republic. The Republic would put down the rebellion, but Marius would have been pleased to see that the Italian allies would have been granted Roman citizenship to prevent further bloodshed and conflict. By this time, a new threat to Roman lands had emerged in the east when the powerful king Mithridates VI of Pontus started taking military action against Roman positions 
in Asiatic lands. Marius was keen to lead an army to take on Mithridates, but the Senate denied him that honour, instead choosing an optimate called Sulla instead. Marius was absolutely furious. Despite supporting the Roman Republic for many years, reforming the military of a dysfunctional establishment into a successful one, and standing up against his own personal morals to patriotically and dutifully support the Republic's cause, the Senate still had reservations about Marius and overlooked him for this great honour. Violence in the Roman Forum enabled Marius to force his intentions and bully the Senate into allowing him to take command of the Roman legions. It was now Sulla's time to be furious, and he fled Rome and gathered together his own military legions before marching on Rome and taking power back from Marius, and thus forcing the Senate to revert to their original decision to allow Sulla to lead the army against Mithridates. This was a typical example of how the Senate were losing their power, being influenced by the military action of individuals as opposed to democratic decision making. So the fabric of the Roman Republic was falling apart. When Sulla left Rome to enjoy the potentially immortalising duty of leading a Roman army to victory in the east, Marius would take control back in Rome anyway. By this time, Marius's nephew Julius Caesar was coming of age. With his uncle Marius in power in Rome and Marius's political opponent Sulla away in the east, Caesar would have been comfortable in Rome as a teenager. Marius allowed his political ally, Lucius Cornelius Cina, to become elected as consul. So things were looking rosy for the popularis while Sulla was away. The next few years brought with them a series of incredible events. The ageing Marius passed away in 86 BCE. And then the following year, so did Caesar's father. Reportedly, after waking up one morning and putting on his shoes in what must be the most unglamorous of deaths in Roman history. Caesar, while still a teenager, would become the head of his family and as a member of a patrician family, he was able to be nominated for one of the ceremonial priesthoods of the Republic and he would be chosen to be the Flamen Dialis, the High Priest of Jupiter. This would mean that he would be obliged to marry a patrician lady, and so he would take the hand of Cornelia, the daughter of his uncle's political ally, China. So Caesar was already becoming a very important young individual of Roman society due to his family ties. While all of these events were taking place in Rome, the absent optimate politician and commander Sulla had been successful against King Mithridates VI of Pontus by first driving him and his supporters out of Athens and the Balkan Peninsula. Sulla would have been fully aware of the situation back in Rome with the Marians, those followers of the now deceased Gaius Marius, 
being in control of Rome. So Sulla would now need to return to Rome and take power as he had done before the First Mithridatic War. Caesar's father-in-law Cina had also been removed from the political chessboard since being unceremoniously murdered by his own soldiers in 84 BCE. So when Sulla returned to Rome, alongside commanders such as Crassus and Pompey, who we will talk of later, all of those men that Caesar would have looked up to were now gone. Caesar's own father, his uncle Marius and his father-in-law Cina. When Sulla eventually took back control in 81 BCE, Caesar would have been 18 years old and a political enemy of Sulla's Rome, purely due to his popularis heritage. Sulla stripped Caesar of his priesthood, and so Caesar fled Rome to avoid imprisonment. Exile Caesar would have initially fled to the safety of the Sabine Hills, northeast of Rome. Caesar's mother, Aurelia, is likely to have still been in Rome with her family, some of whom were supporters of Sulla and the Optimates, and some of them are said to have appealed to Sulla for clemency on the young Julius Caesar. Although Sulla may have shown lenience, Caesar was not prepared to take any chances and looked for opportunities to enhance his standing and reputation without going back to Rome. He knew that while Sulla was in control of Rome, there would be no opportunity for him. Caesar was very well aware that if you wanted to be taken seriously in Rome, then you needed to have a reputation for being a worthy military commander. And so Caesar decided to travel to Asia Minor to act as a Roman ambassador in Bithynia. If he could have an influence on the political situation in Bithynia, then his personal stock may rise and he would be known as being fearless in the shadows of the mighty Pontic Kingdom under the politically and militarily aggressive King Mithridates VI. However, there doesn't appear to be any record of major conflict between Bithynia and Pontus during this period but it does appear that certain members of the Roman elite would make fun of Caesar's ambassadorial visit by claiming that he was in a homosexual relationship with King Nicomedes IV of Bithynia. Now in the classical world it wasn't such a social embarrassment to engage in homosexual acts if you were a male. As we know, it was actively encouraged in ancient Greece between military men as a form of emotional bonding that would strengthen an army unit as a whole. Whether or not Caesar was engaged in such a relationship with Nicomedes is unknown, but it was unlikely as there is no direct evidence to suggest it, and the Roman desire to ridicule him would have been to have portrayed him as the young submissive sexual conquest of Nicomedes by mockingly dubbing Caesar the Queen of Bithynia. It seems that Caesar remained away from Rome up until the retirement and death of Sulla in 78 BCE. And it would be at this point that Caesar would return to his home city. Rome was now different, with both Marius and Cinna 
now deceased. Sulla had kept the Marian popularist supporters in check, but now he was gone. The tensions still remained between the popularists and the optimates though, and Pompey was put forward to deal with the problem. Caesar could have joined the popularist cause, but he had little wealth and the young man decided to keep a low profile. Caesar would take to public speaking and would look to enhance his academic knowledge. He would decide to follow in the footsteps of another young Roman contemporary called Marcus Tullius Cicero, who is more commonly known as Cicero, another man that would play an important role in the politics of the later years of the Roman Republic. Cicero had studied in Rhodes under a tutor called Apollonius Mollen, and Caesar decided to do the same. It would have been during these Mediterranean journeys that Caesar would have been kidnapped by pirates who had travelled west from the area of Cilicia in southern Anatolia. This would be the beginning of quite a bizarre but nonetheless entertaining episode of Caesar's life. And though it is tempting to question the veracity of the story, it is still considered to be an important event in Caesar's young life. The Greek author Plutarch wrote a number of biographies about people in the classical era, and Julius Caesar was one of them. Plutarch brings the story of Caesar's kidnap by Cilician pirates to us in his work. The pirates took Caesar to the island of Pharmacusa, which is the island of Pharmaconisi in the Dodecanese islands of the Aegean Sea, just off the Anatolian coast. Plutarch suggests that Caesar had a very high opinion of himself, even as a captive prisoner. When the pirates put a ransom on Caesar's head, Caesar found the ransom amount to be ridiculous, deeming it a personal insult that it was so low. Despite being their captive prisoner, Caesar would see his own standing as a class above the pirates, believing that he was correct to tell the pirates to lower their voices when he was trying to sleep. Caesar would also verbally taunt the pirates, threatening to have them hanged after he was freed. The pirates just laughed, refusing to rise to these seemingly irrelevant threats. Eventually, a ransom did arrive for Caesar from the city of Miletus. The pirates gratefully accepted this ransom, allowing Caesar to go, thinking little more of anything apart from the money. However, when Caesar got to Miletus, he actually gathered a small naval fleet and went back to Pharmacusa, where he would overwhelm and capture the pirates themselves. Caesar took the pirates to Pergamon and arranged to have them all crucified. And all this after they mocked him for threatening him with death while he was still incarcerated by them. Cursus Honorum When Caesar settled back down in Rome, he was now a man in his late twenties. One of Sulla's loyal followers from the previous decade, Marcus Licinius Crassus, 
was now rising to prominence and becoming quite wealthy. And so he was asked to deal with the slave revolt being led by Spartacus. Pompey would have been putting down revolts in Hispania during the 70s BCE and he only came back in time to help Crassus finish off the job of putting down the slaves in southern Italy. Caesar would now concentrate on starting his own journey up the Roman political ranks, so he wouldn't have been high enough to have been a notable commander just yet, which is likely why his name is not mentioned in relation to the gladiator war. Back in the 80s BCE, Caesar married the daughter of his uncle Marius's close ally, Cinna, her name being Cornelia. Caesar stuck by that marriage alliance despite great pressure from Sulla to divorce her and lose his claim to her dowry. By the early 60s BCE, Caesar would have become a quaestor, which at this time was akin to a tax auditor for the state. However, Cornelia died and possibly during childbirth just as Caesar was due to carry out his stately duties in Hispania. She had likely not even reached the age of 30. Caesar would still travel to Hispania and carry out his stately duties and then return to Rome. After returning, he would take another wife. This time, it would be a woman called Pompeia, and she was actually the granddaughter of Sulla, the political rival of Caesar's uncle Marius. Caesar's quaestorship in Hispania is significant for another reason reported to us in the writings of Plutarch. While he was away, before he came back to Rome and before he married Pompeia, Caesar would encounter a statue of Alexander the Great in Cadiz. Now, we could state that this, alongside the story of the pirate kidnap, could be romantic fiction by a writer potentially trying to glorify the character of Julius Caesar. But in the same token, it is written of Caesar, nonetheless, that when he saw the statue of the great military commander Alexander the Great, that Caesar would be inspired. It is even suggested that Caesar, now at a similar age to Alexander when he died, would be reflective on his own achievements and return to Rome with a more assertive attitude to fulfilling his destiny. Caesar's role as a quaestor in Hispania was the first step in his ascent up the Roman political ladder something referred to as the cursus honorum, literally translated to the course of honours. All Caesar needed to do was bide his time, do his job and impress the right people. We have already discussed how Caesar appears to have had a natural flair for public speaking, being known as an able orator from a very young age. So Caesar would have understood the value of making friends and influencing people and this would have been a vital character trait for someone looking to ascend the cursus honorum. However Caesar's character 
was also defined by other attributes. Now in his 30s, he was beginning to get himself noticed in Rome. Despite being married, he was reported to have enjoyed carnal pleasures with other married women and developed a reputation for being a bit of a womaniser. He would also be happy to spend relentlessly in his quest for success, showing little regard for the burden of being in debt. Caesar still held his popularist principles close to his heart though, believing that wealth shouldn't have been something exclusive to just the aristocracy or the equestrians. Caesar campaigned for the distribution of land to war veterans in a bid to reward those who had shown dedication and loyalty to the health and success of the Roman Republic. It might have been this popularist favour that earned Caesar a label for being a man not to be fully trusted by members of the Senate, likely to be optimates. In summary, Caesar was charismatic and influential but also quite frivolous and self-serving. So it would be fair to say that in a Roman Senate, becoming increasingly dysfunctional as both the Optimates and the Popularis were vying for political supremacy, that for every person who disliked Caesar, there would have been another person that did like him. So despite some having reservations about him, he was still making progress in the Roman political system. In 65 BCE, Caesar became a Curuli Aedili, which meant that he would have had an area of jurisdiction within the city of Rome. This also meant that he could host lavish games and festivals for the population, which would further enhance his popularity with the citizens of Rome. The highest religious office in Rome was that of Pontifex Maximus and it was a role that had been held by a man called Quintus Caecilius Metellus Pius since the lifetime of Sulla in the 80s BCE. When Metellus Pius died in 63 BCE, Caesar saw an opportunity to escape from the debts that he had run up. If Caesar could get himself voted in as the next Pontifex Maximus, then it was possible that he would be able to avoid the danger of being in debt any longer. So he went up against two optimate politicians in a three-way contest, and this might have actually worked out in Caesar's favour, as the presence of two optimate politicians instead of one may have split the optimate votes and left Caesar as the victor. Caesar was now the high priest of Rome. This would bring Caesar to the forefront of Roman politics. One man who was at the forefront of Roman politics already was Cicero, who if you remember was himself a very able orator like Caesar and who had been to Rhodes to be educated as Caesar would do soon after. However, this was when they were both young, ambitious and aspiring public speakers. Now, they were wise men of the Roman Republic, empowered with making important 
day-to-day decisions. When Cicero uncovered a plot from a desperate politician called Lucius Sergius Catilina, more commonly referred to as Catiline, Caesar would voice his opinion that the conspirators should be imprisoned and face trial. Cicero did not agree because the Catiline conspiracy involved the intended murder of prominent statesmen such as Cicero himself. Cicero would want the conspirators to be simply executed without fuss. In the end Cicero would get his way and those who were involved in the conspiracy were strangled in their cells. Cicero would be proud of his work. But many of the population were hugely unnerved by the lack of a trial, preferring to agree with Caesar's suggestion, even though it could now not happen. Once again, Caesar was popular with the people and this would make many optimate politicians nervous about his influence and suspicious of his motives, believing that he had half an eye on becoming the most influential man in Rome, and potentially as powerful as an emperor. Catiline's motivations for causing chaos within the Roman Senate could well have stemmed from his defeat when attempting to become the consul in 64 BCE. He had leaned heavily on the wealth of Crassus to fund his campaign to become the consul, and his failure meant that he was heavily in debt. Catiline may well have been trying to take control of the Roman Republic himself in a desperate act to deal with his own situation. It was after this time that Caesar's ascent to Pontifex Maximus would apparently not come without some social expectations. So when Caesar's wife Pompeia was involved in a scandalous attempt by another man to seduce her into having an affair with him, Caesar felt that he had no option but to divorce her in order to keep his reputation as uncontroversial as possible. Caesar would hold the political office of Praetor in 62 BCE and become the governor of Hispania in 61 BCE. In carrying out his duties, if the Roman Senate opposed Caesar's intentions, then Caesar was not above rallying public demonstrations, knowing that enough citizens would stand in protest against those senators opposing Caesar that they could get decisions reversed. So Caesar was now dangerously popular, and if the Senate wasn't nervous enough about his intentions already, then they certainly would be now. However, Caesar was not finished with his cursus honoris ambitions and decided that the next step of his journey would be to try to be elected as one of the two Roman consuls, which was the pinnacle of the political ladder. The two consuls would act as the equivalent to a modern president for the duration of their year-long term and there were always two so that they would regulate each other's decisions. 
it would also mean that there would be two consular armies, which meant that if one consular army was ever defeated, that there would be a second one to hand. In order to campaign to become the consul, Caesar would need money, and so he followed the same path as Catiline had done before him, and approached the man who had become known as the wealthiest man in Rome, Crassus. On this occasion, Crassus could use the influence of an elected consul to aid him in some financial ventures that he had undertaken on behalf of some tax farmers who wanted permission to renegotiate a deal. This coincided with the return of Pompey from Asiatic lands where he had been extremely successful in subduing many Asiatic societies even though a lot of the work had been done by his predecessor in these lands, Lucullus. Pompey had organised for the very capable Lucullus to be pushed aside, so that Pompey himself could take the glory of the overall campaign. And when he came back to Rome to ask the Senate to acknowledge his work, they were reluctant to do it because they were fearful that Pompey had ambitions to take complete control of the Roman Senate. Even though Pompey was an optimate politician, the optimates in the Senate were suspicious of Pompey and this would cause Pompey to see that there was another angle that he could use to gain influence over the Senate and that would be if he helped Caesar to win the election to the consul. So with Caesar attempting to become the Roman consul and Crassus and Pompey feeling that they had something to gain if they assisted Caesar in successfully winning the election, this would be the beginnings of what has retrospectively been called the First Triumvirate. And it is here that we will leave the story in order to pick it back up again next week. So that was the first of our two-parter on the profile of Julius Caesar. And if that didn't sound uh, full of political intrigue enough for you, then uh, next week is going to be an absolute bloodbath. So let's uh, wait till next week, find out what happened in the second half of Julius Caesar's profile. And uh, that should be extremely interesting. I can't wait to present that to you. As such, I'm not going to waste too much of your time at the end of this episode because I do want anyone that's sort of late to the party, anyone that's listening to this podcast series uh, later than its publication to be able to sort of jump straight into the second half without really missing too much of the entire podcast as a whole. So uh, reviews and, um, and emails, they're going to be saved for next week. So we're going to wrap this one up very quickly this week um, as ever we always say um, if you want to support the podcast then there are a number of ways to do it uh, the best way you can do it is by making a financial contribution you can make a financial contribution for as little as one dollar a month you just go to the history of the world podcast.com website click 
on the Patreon link and that goes straight over to the Patreon website where you can sign up, make a monthly donation. I do give gifts and rewards out for those of you who make significant contributions over any amount of time so you don't have to go all in all at once. You can uh, contribute little by little and still qualify for the rewards. And um, if you can't uh, stretch to a financial contribution, that's absolutely fine. There's no problem with a rate and review of the podcast on your chosen podcast platform also is really, really valuable to the podcast because it exposes the work to more people and more people can become involved. Um, So that's equally as useful. So thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. I can't wait to give you the second half of the story next week. A lot of it we've covered in bits and pieces in previous episodes, but we're going to round it up and make sense of this whole Roman fiasco. So looking forward to next week. Until then, uh, be good, everyone. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.